I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We've got a long passage to uh, consider this morning. We're going to try to get all the way through chapter 12, verse 10. So instead of reading it all at once now, I'm just going to read it uh, in bits as we go along. We'll get to everything in there, Lord willing. Uh, but I think you'll really be helped to have your Bible open so you can follow along. I object to all punishment whatsoever. I don't want to punish anybody. But there are an extraordinary number of people who I want to kill. Not in any unkind or personal spirit, but it must be evident to all of you. You must all know half a dozen people at least who are no use in this world, who are more trouble than they're worth. And I think it would be a good thing to make everybody come before a properly appointed board just as he might come before an income tax commissioner and say every five or every seven years, just put them there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight in the social boat, if you're not producing as much as you consume or perhaps a little more, then clearly, we cannot use the big organization of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive because your life does not benefit us and it can't be of very much use to you yourself. Well, so wrote the Irish playwright and polemicist George Bernard Shaw. One can hope that Shaw's tongue was firmly planted in his cheek as he wrote that, but he does touch on a rather large and important topic. How do we justify our existence? Can we give a reason why it's better that we're here than not being here? Shaw's words gave rise to a fun little exercise that was put on by a 21st century arts magazine. The feature in this sort of cultural review was called Justify Your Existence. And they would get small sort of up-and-coming bands to come and talk about their music. And then that band was challenged to fulfill the titular challenge and to justify their existence. Well, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is being challenged by some false teachers that had come into the church there in Corinth. And while they weren't exactly challenging Paul to justify his existence, in our passage for this morning, we see that the Apostle clearly felt the need to justify his authority to justify his behavior and to justify the message that he preached. So if you look there in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians in verses 5 to 12, you get a, a sense of some of the complaints that were being lodged against Paul. Again, as we read this letter, we're listening in on one side of a telephone conversation, so we have to sort of use some sanctified imagination to recreate the situation there. But we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way... We have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. 
And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Okay, so there's a lot there, but we learn some important things about Paul's opponents. There in verse 5, he sort of drips with sarcasm as he calls them those super apostles. In verse 12, he heaps scorn on their claim to work with the same authority and the same purpose according to the same terms that he and his ministry team works. We'll think more about these opponents, these super apostles, in a couple of minutes. But what's interesting here is the way they were attacking Paul's ministry. There in verse 6, he concedes that his rhetoric wasn't as refined as theirs. You might remember this was a really big deal for the, the sophist teachers They prized the ability to tie people in knots with elaborate and eloquent speeches. That was how they measured your worth and your value as a teacher. But in contrast, Paul admits there that he was perhaps unskilled in speaking. He wasn't the most dynamic orator. Maybe he mumbled or or stammered or just had the kind of voice that no one wants to listen to. But what mattered for Paul as we've seen, was the content of his message. Christ crucified for our sins, risen from the dead in victory. What mattered to Paul was not the manner of his speaking, but as we've seen throughout our study of the two letters to the Corinthians that we have in the scriptures, what mattered to Paul was that the Holy Spirit attended his preaching with displays of soul-saving power. He says there at the end of verse 6, whatever he lacks in eloquence and skill, he says he more than makes up for in knowledge. The other charge that seems to be leveled against Paul was that he didn't take any money from the Corinthians during the 18 months when he lived amongst them. You see that in verse 7 where he asks rhetorically and ridiculously if he was sinning by working for the Corinthians, preaching the gospel to them free of charge. Again, in those days, you judged the the worth of a philosopher by the rate that he could command. If someone could charge a lot of money and had a lot of rich, important, powerful, wealthy students, well, that added to your prestige as a teacher. But when Paul was at Corinth, he didn't take any money from the church there. In fact, we know that he worked making tents to support himself. And as he says there in verses 8 and 9, he took money from other churches, even poorer churches. He had other churches, the churches in Macedonia. They were financially poorer than the, the Corinthian church, but they were much more mature spiritually. And so Paul was comfortable taking money from them, knowing that, that he, basically the Corinthians couldn't handle it. Uh, if he wanted money from them, they, they would get confused about his motives. They would use that as a way to attack him. For the apostle, this willingness to work free of charge was something to boast in, he says there in verse 10. It was proof, verse 11, of his love for them. So that's the nature of the attack on Paul. That was the challenge that these super apostles were leveling against him. This guy is of no account. He works for free. He's not even a good speaker. 
What we see in the rest of, of this passage in chapter 11 and the first 10 verses of chapter 12 is something of Paul's counterattack. We see his attempt to rescue the hearts and minds of the Corinthians from these false teachers for the sake of Christ. And so let's look at the, this passage and let's see specifically three things that are on Paul's mind as he responds to these super apostles. First, let's see Paul's concern for the church. Second, let's see Paul's counteroffensive against these false teachers. And then finally, let's see Paul's contentment in the Lord's power. Paul's concern for the church, his counteroffensive against the false teachers, and his contentment in the Lord's power. So let's look first at Paul's concern. If you start there in chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, we see Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul asks the church there to put up with a little foolishness. You see this word fool or foolishness is all throughout this passage. right? It may have been a word that uh, Paul's critics were using about him. Right? We've seen oftentimes in the Corinthian letters that Paul likes to weaponize his opponent's language and use it against them. The idea here is Paul's acknowledging that to some extent, he's being forced to fight fire with fire. He's being forced to respond to fools with folly. The super apostles are, are boastful. They are, these false teachers in the church at Corinth are, are constantly pointing to their credentials. And so here in our passage, Paul says that he's going to join them in a little bit of folly. He's going to boast He's going to present his resume, his spiritual credentials to the church at Corinth. Now, to be sure, he's going to do it differently. He's going to do it, as we see, in a Christ-honoring way. But he, he sees here at the outset that this whole exercise is fundamentally foolish. It's not the way he wants to operate. But there in verse 2, he explains why he feels the need to engage in this argument this way. He says he feels a divine jealousy for them. Literally, he says, I feel a zeal from God. The, the phrase that Paul uses there seems to clearly be intended to echo back to Numbers 25. If you remember the story there of, of Phineas in Numbers 25, uh, the idea is that Phineas was outraged by the impurity, by the false worship that was being manifested amongst God's people. And so he took drastic measures to put it to an end. You can read that story if you don't remember it in Numbers 25 this afternoon. And that's what we see here. Paul has that same kind of Phineas-like zeal, passion, jealousy, to see the Corinthians walking with the Lord faithfully. And so he uses a word picture there in verse 2. In that culture, a father would betroth, would, would engage his daughter to a groom. And in the same way, uh, Paul says, I feel like a dad that has, has set you all up, who has committed you, engaged you, betrothed you as a bride 
for the Lord Jesus. But just as it would be a scandal for a would-be bride to start shacking up with other men, so Paul is concerned that the Corinthians are being spiritually unfaithful to Jesus, that they're pursuing other lovers, so to speak. There in verse 3, he's concerned that they're being deceived, just like Eve was deceived by Satan back in the Garden of Eden. He's worried that these false teachers will lead the Corinthians astray, he says, in their thoughts so that they'll no longer be pure and devoted to the Lord Jesus in their beliefs. And so you see the issue there in verse 4. Paul is concerned that the Corinthians are far too patient, that they're willing to put up with things. They are too accepting of false teachers and false doctrines, and as a result, they are vulnerable to the devil's deceits. These false teachers, Paul says, came in and they preached and proclaimed a different Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't shed much light on it there in verse 4. But given his passion for proclaiming the folly of Christ crucified in weakness, and given his, given his opponent's apparent passion for glory and impressive, powerful displays of human wisdom, it's likely that these false teachers were presenting to the church something like a superhero Jesus. Right, a, a triumphant Jesus that solves all your problems instead of the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief that Paul had proclaimed to them. The spirit, Paul says, that comes with this false Jesus was certainly not the Holy Spirit of God. The gospel there in verse 4, he says, the message of salvation that proclaims this false Jesus, Paul says, that's not the gospel that I proclaimed. So he's concerned that the church is too willing, too quick to accept this false gospel of a false Jesus brought to them by a false spirit. Church, we as a congregation need to be discerningly intolerant. Now, tolerance is a virtue. It is good to be patient with people who are weak or confused or, or perhaps simply different than we are. It is good for people to feel loved and welcomed. But there are limits to this virtue. There are situations that call for other virtues. There are times when tolerance is the wrong play. If someone wants to abduct your child, you shouldn't be tolerant. If a mechanic wants to put the wrong brake pads on your car, you shouldn't be tolerant. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us, this is not the kind of thing you can put up with. This is not the kind of thing you tolerate. You can't afford to be accepting and flexible and patient when it comes to this kind of spiritual poison. That's why I said we need to be discerningly intolerant. Right? We don't embody the priorities and the principles of the Lord Jesus by, by simply being strident and harsh with those with whom we disagree. We don't want to be divisive. We don't want to be a church that's willing to go to war and separate from our brothers and sisters and, and lob bombs over relatively unimportant issues. Right? We don't want to treat our brothers and sisters as enemies just because they have different positions from us on things like baptism or, or politics or vaccines or quarantines or masks or, or the end times. But, when it comes to the proclamation of Jesus, 
the fully divine, fully eternal, fully human Son of God in flesh, crucified for our sins, risen from the dead in glory, ascended into heaven, one day returning, Jesus, the Lord to whom we all owe all obedience and allegiance, in short, the Jesus that we confessed earlier, using the words of the Nicene Creed, when it comes to the proclamation of that Jesus, we can tolerate no other message. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, salvation, not by anything we do, not something that we earn, but something that comes to us by God's grace through faith alone, when it comes to that gospel message that Paul preached, church, we can tolerate no other message. Because ultimately, no other Jesus can save you. No other gospel can save you. The Holy Spirit of God only works through the message of Jesus. Any other message comes with the spirit of the enemy. And so we need to be discerningly intolerant. We need to be a congregation committed to sticking closely to the message of the gospel, rehearsing it over and over in our life together, building our life around it. And we need to pass it on faithfully to the next generation. So young people here this morning, you, under God's guidance, under God's care, you are tasked with the responsibility of believing the gospel that you've heard in this church and then making sure that it goes forward, making sure that the church continues to proclaim that message long after I'm gone and after your parents are gone. The old saying is that when the message of salvation comes, the first generation believes the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and the third generation loses the gospel. And friends, we, we can't afford to let that happen. We can't assume that the gospel message is clear enough, that everyone knows it, that everyone understands it. Because it's the gospel message, the message of the Jesus presented to us in scriptures, proclaimed by Paul, is the only message that saves. So that's Paul's concern. He's concerned that the, the church is too tolerant of these false teachers. The next thing to see is Paul's counteroffensive against them. Look there in verses 13 to 15. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Okay, so Paul's taking the gloves off here. What he's been sort of speaking around and alluding to, he now makes explicit. These super apostles, in quotes, are in fact fakes and liars, false apostles, deceitful workmen. These are not misguided, well-intentioned believers. He says they are spiritual predators sent from the evil one. Paul says ominously there at the end of verse 15, their end will correspond to their deeds, right? Unless they repent, they will face the judgment of God. But the question is, how on earth did these interlopers work their way into this church that Paul had planted? How did they manage to dislodge the apostle from the Corinthians' affections? 
How do they manage to supplant his pure gospel with their false doctrine? Well, they didn't do it by coming out and being honest. They didn't introduce themselves as false teachers. They didn't say, hey, just to be clear, we are in it for the money and the prestige. Uh, just to be clear, if you follow our teaching, you will certainly go to hell. No, instead, what we see is that they used deceit. Verse 13, deceitful workmen, Paul calls them. They disguised themselves, there in verse 13, as apostles of Christ. There in verse 15, they disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. And listen, this wasn't an accidental strategy. This wasn't something they just happened upon. These false teachers were calling plays right out of the devil's playbook. They deceived because Satan himself is a deceiver. Remember, Paul's worried that they're going to be deceived just like Eve was deceived by the evil one back in the garden. Right? The evil one knows that no one would follow him if he were honest about his intentions. If he told the truth about his temptations and where they lead, no one would ever go after him. And so what does Paul tell us that he does? He disguises himself as an angel of light. He, he wraps his spiritual poison in a candy coating to make it seem sweet and delicious until it's too late. He makes his lies seem attractive. He buries the hook deep in the bait. He makes his perversions seem righteous. So friends, this means that we need to be discerning. Again, as a church, we cannot afford the luxury of being gullible or naive or overly trusting. The picture that Paul paints for us here is of an evil one who is constantly at work trying to gain access to Christ's church. And generally, you're not going to gain a lot of traction walking into a Christian church and announcing that you're there to introduce apostasy and compromise and schism and deceit. And so his strategy is to use falsehood, to make lies seem true by maybe connecting elements of falsehood to truth, by making a half-truth seem like the whole truth, by putting a plausible spin on a spiritually destructive idea. And again, I think if we look at our day and age, we see this principle, this dynamic at work. We see the outside world working its way into churches under the guise of righteousness. We see congregations divert their energies from the proclamation of the gospel to, to advocating for all sorts of political causes on the left and on the right. And I trust that churches did that, not in an intentional effort to abandon the message of salvation, but because they thought they were standing up for what is right. right we see congregations affirming behaviors and practices that are clearly incompatible with following Christ. And again, I don't think they did that because they self-consciously wanted to give up the gospel, but because it seemed like a loving and kind thing to do. I think we see this in the way the gospel gets twisted around in our churches. Whether it's the prosperity gospel that takes a truth, God loves you, God will provide for you, God cares for you, God gives good gifts to his children. They take that truth and pervert it into the only thing God will ever give you is all the money and all the health you want. 
All God cares about is providing you with, with stability and happiness or even legalism, which takes the truth that God is very holy and that we are called to obey him and that no one can be a follower of Christ without acknowledging his lordship and following after him, taking that truth and turning it into a message of, of self-salvation through self-effort. Right? All of those things from outside the church and inside the church are threats to the church that come to us in the guise of friendship, that come saying, hey, be holy, be loving, be courageous. They come as angels of light. They come with Bible verses, usually out of context. They come with biblical terms and seemingly godly concerns. But you know they're false because they, they tempt us to latch on to another Jesus, to a different gospel, even if we might still for now affirm the, the truths that we've been taught. So church, we need to be discerning. We need to make sure that all of the elders that we recognize as a church, in the words that Paul uh, writes to, to Titus, we need to make sure that all of the elders we recognize as a church hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. As individuals, we need to be alert. Right? You, you walk through a minefield differently then you take a walk in a park, right? The awareness that there is hidden danger makes you vigilant. And so here, Paul is warning us that the devil is actively hiding his spiritual traps from our perception. And so we have to be aware. When you pick up a book, or you see a preacher on TV, or you hear someone on a radio, or you listen to a podcast, don't assume that they're trustworthy just because they quote the Bible, just because they say some things that sound plausible. Avail yourself of trustworthy teachers. Avail yourself of resources that will help you understand the Bible well, help you grasp the true gospel that the church has believed and proclaimed since the beginning. And stare closely at those things so that you can spot a counterfeit when it comes the devil doesn't get into the church by being honest. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul's concern is that the Corinthians are too willing to embrace a false gospel. He launches a counteroffensive against these false teachers and their satanic deceit. And so let's look at our third point, and that is Paul's contentment in God's power. There in verses 16 to 21 of chapter 11, we read this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Well, as I mentioned earlier in this passage, Paul is indulging what he calls a little foolish boasting. We're there in verse 18, boasting according to the flesh. He would rather not have to lay out his credentials 
right? That's why he says there in verse 17, this is not as the Lord would, right? This is not the way the ministry of Christ should look. But he's being forced to play a game he'd rather not play. He can't abandon the church to these false teachers, and so he has no choice. He gets pretty sarcastic there in verses 19 to 21 as a, as a deeply sarcastic person. I feel justified in my life choices by some of the things Paul says here. He says, I need to be a fool in order to reach you because apparently you love fools. You are so wise, you gladly bear with all sorts of nonsense. You have wisdom to burn. You're so wise, you can afford to be stupid, he says. There in verse 20, you seem to bear it very well when these false teachers mistreat you. They exploit you, they deceive you, enslave you, devour you, and for some reason, you can't get enough of it. Paul says there at the beginning of verse 21, I'm only sorry that I was too weak to pull that off. Uh, when I was with you, I, I couldn't manage to abuse and manipulate you. That seems to be the way to get your attention. He said, instead, I had to be kind and gentle and loving. And again, just to be clear, he's being sarcastic here. Paul moves on to compare himself to these false teachers. He says there in the middle of verse 21, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So it seems these false teachers must have come from a Jewish background. And so here Paul goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on their credentials. He says they don't have anything to boast in that I can't boast in. But then he takes a, a turn there in the middle of verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? They're at the beginning of verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. And then Paul proceeds to turn everything on its head. He does a little bit of gospel judo here. right? We expect him to keep now heaping up his accomplishments. He says, okay, you're a Jew? Me too. You think you're a servant of Christ? I'm a better one. And we expect Paul's going to say, let me tell you all the churches I planted. Right? Let me tell you all the amazing things I've done. Let me tell you about the time on the Damascus Road, the Lord Jesus appeared to me personally and commissioned me for this work. Right? Let, me, let me tell you about the gospel that I heard directly from the man Jesus himself. Right? That's what we expect Paul's going to do. But instead, he goes from comparing his privileges, his spiritual lineage, and he, he begins instead to celebrate his suffering and his weakness. Look there in the middle of verse 23, or actually start at the beginning of verse 23. Again, we read, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Okay, and again, this is where we think we're going to get a list of Paul's accomplishments. But he goes on and he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, this is the middle of verse 23, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety 
for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So Paul has pulled us back on the tracks. He's going to indulge in a little foolish boasting, but he says he's only going to boast in things that show how weak he is. He's not going to boast like these godless super apostles about his knowledge and his money and his eloquence and his accomplishments. Instead, to show that he's a superior servant of Christ, he gives us a list of sufferings and weakness and humiliation. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into each one of the things that he mentioned. You can take a look, a tour of the book of Acts, and find a lot of the things uh, that Paul talks about uh, here in 2 Corinthians 11 are recorded for us in the book of Acts. But the point of all of those things, the reason why Paul heaps them up, the real thing he wants to boast in, the real evidence of the legitimacy of his ministry, is just how much he suffered. He has all the credentials that those false teachers could claim as Israelites, but they could not hold a candle to his far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Paul's not finished sort of laying out his spiritual resume, though. There in chapter 12, he continues on. He's got one more thing he wants to bring to the Corinthians' attention. He says there in verse 1 of chapter 12, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says we've covered heritage as an Israelite. Check. We've covered incredible suffering and humiliation. Check. Let's talk about visions and revelations from God. He says, you're impressed by these super apostles? Uh, tell me. Tell me if they've, they've had a vision, if they've had a, a revelation like I've had as an actual real apostle. Now, that might be surprising to us to, to hear Paul speak in those terms. It's a bit unusual. But we do know that he had, as I mentioned earlier, a vision of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was going there. To, to destroy the church. He was arrested by the risen Lord Jesus, confronted in his sin, and that's how he became a follower of Christ. We know that other apostles, like John, had an extended vision uh, when he was uh, in exile uh, on the island of Patmos. That's the book that we call Revelation at the end of our New Testament. And so here we find Paul lets us in on another such experience, a vision a revelation. We read about it there in verse, verses 2 to 6. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
So there in verse 2, Paul speaks about something that happened 14 years ago to a man in Christ that he knows. And I think it's pretty clear that Paul is talking about Paul here. Right? He's speaking in the third person to, to distance himself a bit uh, from the things that he'd rather not talk about. As we see, he's going to take this thing that happened to this guy and he's going to apply it to his own life and ministry. So it seems pretty clear that he's really the person uh, that he's talking about here. But what happened is that 14 years ago, he was caught up, he says in verse 2, to the third heaven. There in verse 3, he, he clarifies, into paradise. Now, it's not perfectly clear what Paul means by the third heaven. When the ancients spoke about the heavens, it could kind of mean three things. They could refer to the heavens as the sky, so simply the place where the, the birds fly and the clouds float. They could refer to what we call out, maybe outer space, right, where the, where the moon and the other planets are, sort of beyond the sky. And then beyond that, heaven could refer to sort of the, the realm beyond outer space, the, the place where God himself dwells, that unseen realm. It could also be that Paul's talking about sort of, sort of inner layers of heaven, sort of if heaven reflects something like the design of the ancient temple, the third heaven would be sort of the inmost part, the holy of holies, where God was particularly present. It's not clear, but what is clear is that Paul doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to give us a lot of details. There's all sorts of speculation, which is remarkable, because Paul says, look, it's not the kind of thing human beings can utter, what I, see, what I saw and what I heard. Right? We're not sure how it happened. Paul isn't even sure if he was there in his body or out of his body, he says in verse 2 and 3. He heard things that can't be conveyed in human language. Right? But the idea is that Paul had this extraordinary vision of heaven, of God's presence. And that's pretty amazing. You can see why Paul might be tempted to sort of bust that vision out as a weapon against these false teachers. Right? They, they think they're so great, but tell me, have they ever seen the third heaven? Have, have they ever been judged worthy by God of such an amazing spiritual experience? That's not how Paul does business. That's not what he's saying here. There in verses 5 and 6, he said he could boast like that because it would actually be true. But there in verse 6, he says he refrains lest people think too much of him. He doesn't want to in any way glorify himself, even if it's at the expense of these super apostles. Because what Paul really wants to talk about what all of this foolish boasting of his is heading towards in his mind is not his greatness, but rather, as he says there in verse 6, his weakness. Even this story of an extraordinary vision is ultimately, Paul says, about highlighting his weakness. His boasting is ultimately a way to point to Christ and not to himself. So he continues there in chapter 7 in verses 7 to 10. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul moves on to tell us about God's plan for, for keeping him from becoming conceited in light of these surpassing revelations, this amazing vision that he had of the third heaven. Twice there in verse 7, he tells us that this was one of the Lord's purposes in what followed, right, to keep him from becoming conceited. All right, just think about it. If you kept a log for one week of all of the stupid stuff you bragged about, right, all the stupid stuff you told other people to try and impress them in even some small way. Now imagine that God swept you up into heaven and you had a vision of the third heaven, whatever that is. You can see how you would be tempted to, to be conceited. And so Paul, or I'm sorry, rather God takes measures to prevent Paul from going down that spiritually destructive path. There in verse 7, uh, Paul says that he was given a thorn in the flesh. That word that's translated there as thorn really could just mean any sort of sharp object, right? Sort of stabbing him in the side like a, like a stake or a splinter. But Paul doesn't actually tell us a ton about this trouble. We do see six things about the nature of this thorn that's given to him. At first, as I already mentioned, it was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. It was given to him to inoculate him against the temptation to self-importance in light of this vision. Second, we do see there in verse 7 that it was given to him. Right? Paul sees this thorn as a, as a kind of terrible gift. It seems clear from all that follows that the person who gave this gift to him is the Lord Jesus himself. We're going to see this thorn has a divine purpose. Third, we see that it's a thorn in the flesh, verse 7. It seems that Paul understood this trouble as something that took place in his body, or at least in the realm of this world. We don't really know what this thorn was exactly. I think the most likely guesses are either it was some debilitating physical ailment or some kind of sort of persistent opposition to his ministry like he was experiencing in Corinth. The fourth thing we see here is that this thorn was a messenger, he says, from Satan in verse 7. Even though this gift was given to him by God, even though it would serve a, a good and divine purpose, Paul also sees that it has some kind of diabolical origin. Right, this is a paradox we see throughout the scriptures. God uses the devil's malignant plans for his own good purposes. And that's certainly the case here. Fifth, we see that this thorn, this messenger, harassed him. Literally, the, the word that Paul uses there, it means to beat with fists. Right? The, the apostle is speaking figuratively here. But the idea is that this was no small issue. This was something, he says, that, that tormented him. And sixth, we see that Paul pleaded with the Lord repeatedly for the thorn to be removed, to be taken away, to be kept from him. We're not told explicitly that his request was denied, but it clearly was. For we see the Lord's explanation there in verse 9. Jesus does not remove the affliction, but he does explain it. In verse 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. That is to say, Paul is not abandoned to endure this struggle alone in his own strength. But the Lord Jesus, so there in verse 8, Paul says he pleaded with the Lord. Almost always when Paul says the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is, is present with him. The Greek word has the sense of 
uh, of being completely adequate, right? That, that idea of sufficiency. It means that there is not one tiny thing that Paul needs to endure this struggle that is not present and provided for him in the grace that the Lord Jesus gives. Paul has all of the help that he needs. He will lack for nothing as he faces this difficulty. Then the Lord tells him why the thorn has to remain. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God is brought to completion. It achieves its purpose in weakness. Again, this is a theme we've seen throughout 2 Corinthians. Paul, remember in chapter 4, talks about being a, a weak and fragile jar of clay to demonstrate the surpassing power of God. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself is the ultimate example of power in weakness. Right? We can't think of Paul being harassed or literally beaten with fists without our minds going to Christ's humiliation at the hands of the men who were holding him in custody before his crucifixion. We can't think of Paul pleading for relief from this suffering without thinking about the Lord Jesus pleading that this cup might pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' weakness, Jesus' humiliation before his enemies was the ultimate perfect example of God's saving power being manifested through what looks like weakness. And so again, we see what Paul has been hammering throughout this book, that, that genuine Christian ministry is carried out in a manner that is consistent with the manner in which Christ walked. Right? That's a lesson that he learned through suffering. Again, there at the end of verse 9, he tells us he moved from pleading that this thorn would be removed to now, he says, boasting in it. He went from begging the Lord Jesus to remove it to saying this is what I want to tell people about. Because his lack has proven to be an opportunity for the power of Christ to rest upon him, he says. There at the end of verse 10, he says that what he's learned is that it's actually when he's weak it's actually then that he's truly strong. Because when we lack the resources we need, when we cannot possibly face the problems in front of us, when we cannot possibly endure the challenges that beset us, it's in those moments, it's in those circumstances where we are weak that the power of Christ is seen most clearly. So Paul's conclusion to all of this there in verse 10, I am content that translation is actually a little weak. I think it's, it's better understood that Paul's saying, I am delighted. His opponents mock his weakness. They mock the gifts that he lacks. They mock the way he seems to keep suffering. For them, his, his weakness, as he says there in verse 10, his, his insults, hardship, persecution, those calamities, those were proof that God did not regard him. They were proof that he was of no account but for Paul, they were a cause of boasting. They were protection against becoming conceited. They were an arena in which the power of the grace of the Lord Jesus was put on display for everyone to see. So, brothers and sisters, I think the application to our lives is, is pretty clear, pretty direct. You haven't been called to Paul's specific ministry. And it is unlikely that you will experience the things that Paul experienced in terms of visions, 
and suffering in this life. But God's purpose in your life is the same as it was in Paul's, to display the power of the Lord Jesus through your weakness and to cause you to even delight in it because he will make your suffering an avenue for his grace. He will graciously help you and strengthen you in your troubles. And friends, that's really important to have clear in your head now. Because either you are suffering right now, or you will be suffering at some point in the future. But when it comes, if it hasn't already, you need to have this clear in your mind. That suffering could take a number of forms. It could be a physical ailment. It could be a painful relational difficulty. It could be an abiding temptation that you have pled with the Lord to take away. It could be an emotional darkness that just doesn't seem to lift. An anxiety that, that simply won't go away. In those cases, we are, we are tempted to think that if God really loved us, if we pled enough, well, then he would take it away. Again, that's what, the, that's what the world outside these doors would teach us. That's what even false gospels coming into the church would teach us. If God loves you, he really loved you, he would never make you suffer. He would never make you weak. He would never cause any, do, put you through anything that would cause you pain. Right? We're tempted to think that God would respond to our prayers with, of course, my child, I love you. I would never want you to experience any kind of weakness. But brothers and sisters, God actually has something better for us than, than momentary comfort and ease. When we view our thorns and our struggles through the lenses that Paul offers us here, right? instead of panicking, instead of raging against God, instead of giving in to despair, when we take those weaknesses to Christ and should he decide not to remove them, resolve to delight in them, because we can trust that through them he will give us the grace and the help that we need, well, then Jesus will make our weakness a display of his power. He will show his character. He will show the pattern of his life in us. And he will use that to point people to Christ, despite all that we lack, despite all that we are not. He will use our weakness to protect us from the spiritual cancer of pride by making it clear that we do not have the resources in and of ourselves to endure. And he will fill us. He will fill us up all that we like with all of the grace that we need, with all of the help and all of the comfort to sustain us. Church family, this is one of the ways we make much of Jesus in this world. This is one of the ways that we live out our calling to be a countercultural community amidst the prosperity, amidst the striving of Northern Virginia. With God's grace, with his help, we can be a people who are not unnerved and undone and embittered by trials and suffering and difficulty. We can be people who are content. More than that, we can be people who delight in weakness and trouble and what we lack. We're not seduced by the idea that our wealth or our access to power, our education, our career achievements. We are not seduced by the idea that those things are the very best gifts God has to give us. Instead, we trust that God will give us Christ, 
that he will give us the ultimate example of his saving power displayed in weakness and pain. God will give us grace and help, not in the context of our strength, but in the context of our weakness. What's this counterintuitive way that's on display for us at the Lord's table? As we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that the saving power of God, the grace that sustains us now and gives us hope into eternity, comes to us not in a demonstration of strength and grandeur, but it comes to us in suffering and weakness. It is a broken body. It is shed blood that is held out to us. So, brothers and sisters, let's come together to the table. Let's rejoice in the memory, in the celebration of the incredible, powerful weakness of Christ. Let's come in confidence that he is able to give us grace in all of our trials and troubles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us, that when we struggle, when we suffer, when we are beset by weaknesses and thorns, We need not doubt your love because you've sent your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, who were rich and powerful beyond all measure, endured humiliation and weakness and shame so that we might experience the grace and the help and the power that we need. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us, Spirit, to rejoice in the troubles uh, that we endure. And we pray that you would display the, the power and the majesty of Christ through us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.